In the name of Allah, the Beneficent, the Merciful, to whom all praise is due, whom we forever thank for giving us as our leader and teacher, the one who's in America today in the person of the most honorable and humble Elijah Muhammad. Mr. Moderator, and to our other distinguished guests, our brothers and sisters, our friends, and also our enemies. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us that it, that it was the evil sins of slavery that caused the downfall and destruction of ancient Egypt, ancient Babylon, and ancient Rome. It was the evil sins of colonialism, 19th century slavery, European style, that is causing the collapse as world powers of the white nations in Europe today. We of this present generation are witnessing how America's enslavement of millions of blacks in this country is now bringing America to her hour of judgment, to her downfall as a respected nation. And even those who are blind with childlike patriotism can see that it is only a matter of time when America also will be utterly destroyed by her own sins and all traces of her former glory removed from this planet. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us that as it was in the case of the slave empires in the ancient and modern past, America's judgment and destruction will also be brought about by the divine will and the divine power of Almighty God. America's worst crime is her hypocrisy. White America pretends to ask herself, what do the Negroes want? While white America knows that 400 years of cruel bondage have made these 20 million Negroes too blind mentally to know what they really want, white America should be asking herself, what does God want for the 20 million ex-slaves? And who will make white America know what it is that God wants? Who will present God's plan to white America? What is God's solution to the problem caused by the unwanted presence of 20 million black people here in white America? And who will present God's solution? We, the Muslims who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad here in America, believe wholeheartedly in the God of justice. We believe in the Creator whose divine power and laws of justice created and still sustains this vast universe. We believe in the all-wise supreme being, the great God who is called Jehovah by the Jews, who is called Christ by the Christians. But we, we who are Muslims know him by his true name, Allah. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us that Allah is the true name of the divine supreme being. We who are Muslims believe in the religion described in the Arabic language by the word Islam. Islam is an Arabic word that means complete submission to God's will or obedience to God's guidance. This religion that teaches us submission to God's will and obedience to God's guidance makes it easy for us to walk the path of truth, righteousness, and peace. Muslim is an Arabic word that is used to describe those whose religion is Islam. 
A Muslim is one who practices complete submission and obedience to God's will by teaching us the religion of Islam and making us live the, li the life of a Muslim, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is turning hundreds of thousands of American Negroes away from drunkenness, away from drug addiction, away from tobacco, steal stealing, lying, cheating, gambling, profanity, rudeness, boisterousness, filth, fornication, adultery, and many of the other acts of immorality that have become almost inseparable from this Western Christian society. As Muslims, we believe in the one God whose proper name is Allah. We believe that this one God has only one religion, the religion of Islam, the religion of obedience to one God. We believe that we are now living at the end of time in prophecy fulfillment, when this one God is going to use his one religion to establish one, one world, here on this a planet called Earth. The world of Islam, or Muslim world, which only means a world, a one world of universal brotherhood that will be founded upon the principles of truth, freedom, justice, equality, righteousness, and peace. Before God can set up his new world, which will be established on the principles of truth, righteousness, and brotherhood, he himself must first destroy this evil Western world, which practices falsehood, slavery, and thrives on immorality. And the hour of judgment and doom is on America for the evil seeds of slavery and hypocrisy that she has sown. And God himself has declared that no one shall escape the doom of this Western world except those who accept Allah as God, Islam as his only religion, and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad as his last messenger to the 20 million lost sheep who are called Negroes here in America. God himself has, de has declared that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is your only means of escape. You ridicule the Honorable Elijah Muhammad because of his lack of education and his cotton field origin in Georgia. You choose to listen to the Negro civil rights leaders little puppets whom you yourself have trained in your institutions, Negroes whom you have set up as spokesmen for your ex-slaves. And these so-called spokesmen do nothing but parrot for you that which they already know you want to hear. And you are naive enough to believe what they say. Pharaoh also opposed Moses. Pharaoh hired his trained magicians to deceive the slaves into thinking that Moses was a hate teacher, an extremist who was, who was advocating some kind of racial supremacy, simply because Moses was trying to restore into his own people their lost culture, their lost identity, their lost racial dignity, the same as the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is trying to do among the Negro ex-slaves in this modern house of bondage today. In fact, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is a modern David. And like ancient David, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has refused the, the carnal weapons of this wicked world. And armed only with a slingshot and stones of truth, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is battering the head of this modern Goliath, 
giant America with a doctrine that no helmet of falsehood can withstand. And it is only a matter of time before the gospel of truth, this gospel of truth, will make this giant of falsehood topple and fall forever. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us to believe in Allah, to believe in all the prophets, including Jesus, to believe in all the scriptures, to believe in the resurrection of the dead, not the physic physical dead, not the resurrection of the physical dead, but the resurrection of the mentally dead Negroes here in this country. He teaches us to believe in the judgment day and also the doomsday, which only means the judgment of this wicked white world and its doom or destruction by the hand of God. But he preaches forgiveness and salvation for the innocent slaves who have been made so mentally blind, deaf, and dumb by the slave master that no just God could condemn the American Negroes for their sinful, ignorant behavior. When the Honorable Elijah Muhammad says end of the world, he does not mean the end of the earth. He's referring to the end of a race or world of people and their removal from this earth, the removal of their world. And there are many worlds here on this earth, the Buddhist world, the Hindu world, the Jewish world, the Christian world, the Muslim world, the capitalist world, socialist world, communist world, eastern world, western world, dark world, and white world. There are many worlds. Which of these many worlds has come to the end of its rope? Which of these many worlds has come to the end of its time? You need only look around you at the signs, and you will agree that it's the end of time for the Western world, the end of time for the Christian world, the end of time for the white world. The time has ended when the white world can exercise unilateral authority and control over the dark world. The independence and power of the dark world is on the increase, and it is the rise of the dark world that is causing the fall of the white world. As the white man loses his power to oppress and exploit the wealth of the dark world, the white man's power decreases. The white man's world decreases. It is on its way down. It is on its way out. And it is the will and the power of God himself that is bringing an end to the power of the white world. You and I were born at a turning point in history. We are witnessing the fulfillment of prophecy. This present generation has already witnessed the end of colonialism, the end of Europeanism, the end of Westernism or whiteism, the end of white supremacy. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad says that the end of the world only means the end of a certain power. The end of colonialism means the end of the power or the world of the colonizer. The end of Europeanism ends the world of the European or the power of the European. And the end of whiteism ends the power or the world of the white man. Judgment Day is the final hour when God himself sits in the seat of justice and, and judges these nations or worlds according to the deeds they committed and the seeds they sowed when they themselves 
sat in the seat of power. According to the Christian's Bible, judgment day is that hour when God will cause those who led others into captivity to go into captivity themselves. Those who killed others with the sword to be killed by the sword of justice themselves. Justice means that the wicked must reap the fruit or the harvest of the evil deeds they have planted. White America must receive justice according to her own historic deeds. So shall she be judged. Where will this divine disaster or divine execution take place? All the prophets of the past listed America as number one among the guilty nations that would be too proud and too blind to repent and to atone when God's last messenger is raised here in her midst to warn her. America's last chance, her last warning, is coming from the lips of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad today. Accept him and be saved. Reject him and be damned. And it is written that white America will reject him. And it is written that you will be damned and you will be doomed. And the prophets who write these prophecies are never wrong in their divine predictions. White America refuses to reflect. White America refuses to study. And white America refuses to learn a lesson from history. Ancient Egypt didn't have to be destroyed, but her corrupt government, the crooked politicians, caused her destruction by hiring magicians to fool the Hebrews into thinking that they would soon be integrated into the mainstream of Egypt's life. These crooked government officials didn't have the Hebrew, didn't, they didn't want the Hebrews to heed Moses' message of separation. Separation was God's solution to the Egyptian race problem. In opposing Moses, these magicians were actually opposing the Hebrew God. In like manner, magicians today posing as Negro leaders and Negro spokesmen are hired and supported by this American government, by white liberals, to oppose the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Their job is to make our people think integration into this American society will solve all of our problems. But the Honorable Elijah Muhammad says the only permanent solution to America's race problem is the complete separation of these 20 million ex-slaves from our former slave master and the return of these ex-slaves to our own land where we can then live in peace among our own people. The government is working with the Negro civil rights leaders, but not to solve the race problem. The greedy politicians who run the government give lip service to the civil rights struggle only to further their own selfish interests. And their main interest as politicians is to stay in power. In this crooked game of power politics here in America, the Negro, namely the race problem, integration, civil rights issue, are all nothing but tools used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives, either to get into power or to retain power. 
Among whites here in America, the political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football, and the white liberals control this ball through tricks or tokenism, false promises of integration and civil rights. In this game of deceiving and using the American Negro, the white liberals have complete cooperation of the Negro civil rights leader who sell our people out for a few crumbs of token recognition, token gains, token progress. In the New York Tribune, in an editorial dated February the 5th, 1960, they pointed out that out of 11 million qualified Negro voters, only 2,700,000 actually take time to vote. This means that, roughly speaking, only 3 million out of the 11 million Negroes who are qualified to vote take an active part. And the remaining 8 million remain voluntarily inactive. And yet it is this small minority, the 3 million Negro voters, who help determine who will be the next president. If who will be the next president can be influenced by 3 million Negro voters, it is easy to see why the presidential candidates of both political parties put on such a false show with the civil rights bill and promises of integration. They must impress the three million voting Negroes who are the actual integration seekers. And if so much fuss is made over these three million integration seekers, what would the presidential candidates have to do to appease the eight million non-voting Negroes, if they ever decided to become politically active. They hold the balance of power. Who are the eight million non-voting Negroes? What do they want? And why don't they vote? The three million uh, Negro, uh, Negro voters are the so-called middle-class Negroes or high-class Negroes or uppity Negroes, who are referred to by the late Howard University sociology professor E. Franklin Frazier as the black bourgeoisie, who have been educated to think as patriotic individualists with no racial pride whatsoever, who believe in and look forward to the future integrated intermarried society that is constantly being promised to them by the Negro politician. And therefore, 
This integration-minded three million minority remain an active part of the white-controlled political parties. But it must never be overlooked that these three million Negro integration seekers are only a small minority of the 11 million qualified Negro voters. The 8 million non-voting Negroes are the majority, the downtrodden black masses. They have refused to vote. They've refused to take a part in politics because they reject the Uncle Tom approach of the clergy politician leadership that has been handpicked for the, for the so-called Negroes by the white man himself. This clergy politician leadership does not speak for the Negro majority. They don't speak for the black masses. They speak for the black bourgeoisie, the brainwashed, white-minded, middle-class minority, who because they are ashamed of their race, because they are ashamed of being black, and don't want to be identified with black, they are seeking to lose this black identity by mixing and mingling and intermarrying and integrating with the white society. The race problem cannot be solved by listening to the white-minded, brainwashed minority. The white man must try to learn what the black majority wants. The president would be wise to try and learn what the black masses want. And the only way to find this out is by listening to the man who speaks for the black masses. And I can declare to you tonight and to the entire world that the man here in America who speaks for the majority, the downtrodden, dissatisfied black masses, is this same man who so many thousands of our people are flocking toward to see and hear. This same Mr. Muhammad, who is labeled by you as a black supremacist and as a racist and as an extremist. If the three million middle-class Negroes are casting their ballots for integration and intermarriage, what do the non-voting black masses who are in the majority want? Find out what the black masses want, and then perhaps America's grave race problem can be solved. Think how the present president got into his office by only a scant margin. And how many governors do you know who hold their political seat, some by less than 10,000 votes? You have a good example of that right here in your own state house. Then you can better understand the importance the white liberals place upon their control of the black voting Negro minority. These white liberals are the ones who hate and oppose the Honorable Elijah Muhammad the most. They're hypocrites. They know that their present position in the power, power structure, stems only from their ability to deceive and exploit the Negro economically as well as politically. They also know that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's divine message will make the Negro wake up and make the Negro clean up and make the Negro stand up. And they know that once the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is able to resurrect the Negro from his mental grave of ignorance by teaching him the truth about himself and the truth about his enemy, the Negro will then be able to see for himself and think for himself and speak for himself. Once the Negro is exposed to the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's divine message, 
He will no longer allow himself to be used by white liberals as a blind and helpless football in the white man's crooked game of power politics. Let us take a quick examination of some of the methods, the strategy employed by white liberals to harness and exploit the political potential energies of the so-called Negro in America. The crooked politicians in Washington, D.C. always make a big noise over the proposed civil rights legislation. By blowing up the civil rights issue, this lends stature to the Negro civil rights leaders. And once the image of these Negro civil rights leaders has been built up way beyond their proper proportion, these same Negro civil rights leaders are then used to influence and control the Negro voters for the benefit of the white politicians who pose as liberals and who pose as the friend of the Negro. The white liberals control the Negroes and the Negro vote by controlling the Negro civil rights leaders. As long as they control the Negro civil rights leaders, they can also control and contain the Negro's struggle. They can control the Negro's so-called revolt. And I must point out right here, there's no such thing as a Negro revolution. There's a black revolution, but not a Negro revolution. Whoever heard of a nonviolent revolution? Whoever heard of a peaceful revolution? Whoever heard of revolutionaries standing up like chumps with locked arms singing, we shall overcome? Whoever heard of a revolution based on a desegregated lunch counter and a desegregated theater and a desegregated public park and a desegregated toilet, which they call public accommodation. Revolutions are based on land and they are brought about by the landless against the landlord. The Negro Revolution is controlled by white liberals. That's the Negro Revolution is controlled by white liberals. It's controlled by the government. But the Black Revolution is controlled by God. Here in America, the Black Revolution is best seen in the teachings and the accomplishments of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and the Muslims who follow him. America is the last stronghold of white supremacy. And the black revolution, not the Negro revolution, the black revolution is international in nature and it's international in scope. And it is sweeping down upon America like a raging forest fire. And it is only a matter of time before America will be engulfed by these black flames, these black firebrands. Whenever an uncontrollable forest fire is roaring down upon the forest, on the, upon the farmhouse. The only way the farmer can fight that forest fire is by building a backfire, a fire that he himself can control. And he then uses this controlled fire to fight the fire that is raging beyond his control. Here in America, the black revolution, that uncontrollable forest fire, is represented by the teachings and the works 
of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. This man of God cannot be controlled in any way by the white man. And he will not compromise in any way with the wrongs that this government has inflicted upon our people. The Negro revolt is a backfire. It's controlled by the white man. The Negro revolt is controlled by the government. The leaders of the Negro revolt, the so-called Negro civil rights leaders, are subsidized, influenced, and controlled by white liberals. And all of the demonstrations that are taking place in this country for desegregated lunch counters, theaters, public toilets, are just artificial fires that have been instigated by white liberals and is being called the Negro Revolt in hope that they can use it to fight off the real black revolution that has already swept through Asia and swept through Africa and is getting started in Latin America and is now manifesting itself here in this country. Can we prove what we say? Can we prove that the Negro Revolt is controlled by white liberals? Yes. Right after the Birmingham explosion, right after the police dogs, the police clubs, and the fire hoses last May, the New York Times on May the 15th, on page 26, reported President Kennedy and his brother Robert Kennedy, two gentlemen whom I'm certain all of you are familiar, after a luncheon with several newspaper editors from the state of Alabama, some of their Democratic colleagues, or I should say Democrat colleagues, the Times reported the president as warning these editors that they must give at least some token gains to the moderate Negro leaders in order to enhance the image of these moderate Negro leaders in the eyesight of the black masses. Otherwise, he warned, the masses of Negroes might turn to the direction of Negro extremists. And he named the black Muslims as being foremost among these Negro extremists. So he tried to get them to build up the image of the moderate Negro leader, what he called or termed the responsible Negro leader. And whenever you hear a white man refer to a Negro leader as a responsible Negro leader, he means a Negro leader who's responsible to him. In essence, the president was admitting to these Southern editors that he was trying to build up the weak image of the Negro civil rights leaders in order to offset the, the strong religious image of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. He wasn't giving these Negro leaders anything that they deserve, but he was admitting the necessity of building them up and propping them up in order to hold the masses of black people in check, keep them in his grasp and under his control. The president knew that once the Negroes follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, once they're exposed to his doctrine, the white liberal can never influence Negroes or control those Negroes or use those Negroes for the political benefit of white liberals any longer. Dr. Martin Luther King's image had been shattered the previous year when he failed to bring about desegregation in Albany, Georgia.
The other uh, Negro civil rights leaders had also become fallen idols. The masses of black people across the country at the local level had begun to lead themselves and to take their cases to the streets on their own. The government in Washington knew that something had to be done to get the Negroes back into the corral, back under the control of the white liberal. The government immediately began to put out the propaganda, encouraging Negroes to follow only what it called responsible Negro leadership. And as I said, by responsible Negro leaders, the government actually meant Negro leaders who were responsible to the government and who could therefore be controlled by the government. The government knows that Mr. Muhammad is responsible only to God and can be controlled only by God. Last May, right after the police dogs, fire hoses, and police clubs, the Birmingham Negroes exploded. They rioted. They erupted. And during the many long weeks when the police dogs and clubs and water hoses were brutalizing Negro women and Negro children and Negro babies, and the Negroes had, to, had called, Negro leaders had called for a federal inter intervention of troops by the president, the president sat on his hands, saying there was nothing he could do. But when the Negroes erupted in self-defense, the president then sent in federal troops, not to defend Negroes, but to defend the whites against whom the Negroes had finally erupted. There are many of you who may get a little indignant at what I say about the president, but it's a matter of record. As long as the dogs were biting black children, as long as the dogs were biting black women, as long as the dogs were biting black babies, and the Negro leaders cried to Washington, D.C. for the intervention of federal troops. The president, one of your fellow city citizens, told them there was no law on the statute books that he could use to intervene. But when black people erupted and started taking the heads of white people, the troops arrived the next morning. At that point, all over the country, spontaneous demonstrations began to take place. Negroes began to talk about how they were going to march on Washington and tie up the Senate and tie up the Congress and tie up the White House, how they were going to lay their bodies across the runaway at the airport and stop the airplanes from taking off or from landing, bring all traffic to a halt. And as much as this president travels by plane, he really would have been in bad shape. <laughs> this frightened the government. It frightened the white power structure in Washington, D.C. The president called in the Negro civil rights leaders and told them to bring this thing to a stop. They had gone far enough. They were deviating from the script. But the Negro civil rights leaders told the president they couldn't stop it because they didn't start it. They couldn't bring it to a halt. They weren't even leading it. It's spontaneous. It's at the grassroots level. It's in the hands of the masses. It's in the streets. It has no leadership whatsoever. 
That was why it was so militant. When the president saw that he couldn't stop it, he joined it. He endorsed it. He welcomed it. He became a part of it. And it was he who put the six Negro civil rights leaders at the head of it. It was he who made them the big six. How did he do it? How did he gain control of the march on Washington? A study of his strategy will give you a glimpse of the political genius of the family that now rules the country from the White House and how they use the Negro to do it. The president endorsed the march that should have been, that should have been the tip-off. A few days after he endorsed it, in New York City, at the Carlisle Hotel, a hotel which I think if you investigate, you'll find belongs to that illustrious family. A philanthropic society called the Taconic Foundation, headed by a white man, a white liberal named Stephen Currier, called a meeting of the six civil rights leaders in an effort to bring about unity of action and unity of purpose among all the civil rights groups. These six civil rights groups were shown how they were destroying themselves by divisions and by attacks upon each other. And it was suggested that since most of their divisions stemmed from their competition for funds from white liberals, they should unite their fundraising efforts. If you check the paper, you'll find that right after the Birmingham explosion, Martin Luther King began to run all over the country participating in fundraising rallies. And Roy Wilkins accused him of starting trouble and expecting the NAACP to get him out and pay the bills while they run all over the country and took all the money. And it caused a lot of friction. So this white liberal, they knew it. And they brought these six Negro leaders together and talked to them, told them, don't rock the boat. They formed the Council for United Civil Rights Leadership for fundraising purposes. They chose as chairman of this council the Urban League's Whitney Young and Stephen Currier, the white liberal, as co-chairman. It took this white liberal to bring all the six Negro civil rights groups together. It took this white liberal to unite these six into one group. And then he let them select their own chairman, but he himself became co-chairman which placed him and the Taconic Foundation in position to exercise influence and control over the civil rights leaders and through them control over the entire civil rights, Negro civil rights movement, plus the March on Washington. According to the New York Times, dated August 4th, 1963, $800,000 was split up between these six Negro civil rights organizations on June the 19th, and another 700,000 was promised after the march. Public relations experts were made available to them immediately. They were given access to the news media across the country, and the press immediately began to project the big six as the leaders of the March on Washington. 
As soon as they became looked upon in the public eye as being in control of the march, as being leaders of the march, as being the organizers of the march and inseparable from the march image, the, their next step was to invite four white liberals to become a part of the Godhead or group of leaders who would ultimately okay all plans and therefore thereby completely control the march. These four white liberals, Walter Ruther, a Jewish rabbi, a priest, and a pastor from Protestants, represented the same factions that had put the president in Washington, D.C. Catholic liberals, Protestant liberals, Jewish liberals, and labor. When the president had learned that he couldn't stop the march, he joined it and got all his friends to join it. This is the way the white liberals took over the march on Washington. This is the way they weakened its impact and changed its course by changing the participants, by changing the contents, they were able to change the very nature of the march itself. An example, if I have a cup of coffee that's too strong for me because it's too black, I weaken it by pouring cream into it. I integrate it with cream. If I keep pouring enough cream in the coffee, pretty soon the entire flavor of the coffee is changed. The nature of the coffee is changed. And if enough cream is poured in, eventually you don't even know that I have coffee in my cup. This is what happened with the March on Washington. They didn't integrate it. They infiltrated it. Whites joined it. They engulfed it. They became so much a part of it, it lost its original fla flavor. It ceased to be a black march. It ceased to be militant. It ceased to be angry. It ceased to be impatient. In fact, it ceased to be a march. It became a farce. It became a picnic, an outing with a festive circus-like atmosphere with clowns and all. The government had learned that most of these demonstrations where black people predominate are very militant and oftentimes lead to violence. But to the same degree that whites participate, violence most times is decreased. I watched a white clergyman on the, t on the TV news in New York when the Negroes were picketing the downstate medical center in Brooklyn. I think the man's name was Potter or Cooper or something, I forget. He's somehow official in, the, in, in one of these Protestant churches. And they asked him why he was out there picketing, a white man. And he told them on the news, I just came back from Washington talking with the Attorney General. And he told me that their statistics had shown that wherever these demonstrations take place and they're predominantly black, they're too militant and too prone toward violence. And they had discovered that when whites participate, to the same degree that whites participate, the militancy decreases and violence is eliminated, minimized. So when these whites join these Negroes and they're demonstrating, there's two different motives. The Negroes are demonstrating for freedom 
But the whites are out there demonstrating to keep the Negroes from getting too far out of line. The government found out that this is the only way black people could be held in check. The government told the marchers on Washington what time to arrive in Washington, where to arrive, and when to arrive. Then the government channeled them from the arrival point to the feet of a dead president named Washington and let them march from there to the feet of another dead president named Lincoln. <laughs> the original black militants had planned to march on the White House, on the Senate, on the Congress, but the shrewd politicians in Washington, D.C., realizing that these black militants could not be stopped, joined them, and thereby these white liberals were able to lead them away from the White House, away from the Capitol, away from the Senate, and away from the Congress, and away from victory by keeping them marching between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Monument, marching between the feet of two dead men. The march was controlled by the president. The government told the marchers what signs to carry, what songs to sing, what speeches they could make and what speeches they could not make. And then the government told them to be sure and get out of town by sundown. <laughs> And all those Negro Uncle Toms were out of town by sundown. <laughs> One of the six Negro leaders, John Lewis, chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, was stopped from making a militant speech. The speech was censored by the Reverend Patrick O'Boyle, the Catholic Archbishop of Washington, D.C., Catholic clergyman doesn't speak on his own. He doesn't have that latitude. When he opens up his mouth, that's the church speaking. This was a case in which the Catholic Church itself, for whom Reverend O'Boyle speaks, put itself in a position of censoring one of the six Negro civil rights leaders. This shows John F. Kennedy's shrewd strategy. In fact, that's what that F stands for, the fox. <laughs> this Catholic, Catholic president placed the Catholic bishop in a, in a position to exercise censorship over any one of the six Negro civil rights leaders who tried to deviate from the script in that great performance or show that the government itself had controlled from the very beginning. So in the final analysis of the march, it would have to be classified as the best performance of the year in fact, the best performance of the century. It topped anything that Hollywood could have produced. <laughs> and if we were going to give out Academy Awards in 1963, we would have to nominate John the Fox 
for an Oscar for the producer of the year. And to the four white liberals also goes an Oscar for, for the best actors. They really acted like sincere liberals and fooled many Negroes. And to the six Negro civil rights leaders also should go an Oscar for the best supporting cast. <laughs> they lent their support to what they knew was nothing but an act, nothing but a show, nothing but a farce. Now that the show is over, the black masses are still without jobs, still without homes, and still without land. Their Christian churches are being bombed. Their little girls are being murdered. What did the march accomplish? The president has a bigger image as a liberal. The four whites have a bigger image as a liberal. The six Negroes have bigger images as leaders. But the black masses are still unemployed, still in the slums, are still hungry. And I might add, they're getting angrier and more explosive every day. So in my conclusion, because of America's evil deeds and tricks and false promises against the so-called Negroes in this country, like Egypt and Babylon before her, America herself now stands before the bar of justice. America is now facing her day of judgment. And she can't escape because God himself is the judge. God himself is now the administrator of justice. And God himself is going to be the divine executor. Is it possible for America to escape this divine disaster? The Honorable Elijah Muhammad says that if America can't atone for the crimes that she has committed against 20 million so-called Negroes, if she can't undo the evils she has brutally and mercilessly heaped upon our people these past 400 years, then America has already signed her own doom. And our people here would be foolish to accept America's deceitful offers of integration at this late date into a doomed society. How can America atone for these crimes? I must point out, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has already said, a desegregated theater or lunch counter won't solve the problem. Better jobs won't solve the problem. An integrated cup of coffee isn't sufficient pay for 400 years of slave labor. A better job in the white man's factory or business is at best only a temporary solution. The only lasting or permanent solution is complete separation on some land that we can call our own. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad says the race problem can be solved forever just by sending the 20 million ex-slaves back to our own homeland where we can then live in peace and harmony among our own people. But this government should provide the transportation, plus everything else we need to get started again in our own country. This government should give us everything we need in the form of machinery, tools, material, and finance, 
enough to last us from 20 to 25 years until we can become an independent people in our own right. And it's good that you've lived long enough to have some laughter left in you. If the American government is afraid to send us back to our own country, to our own people, then America must set aside some separate territory here in the Western Hemisphere, where the two races can live apart from each other, since we certainly don't get along peacefully when we're together. The size of the territory can be judged or determined according to our own population. If we number one-seventh of the population, give us one-seventh of the land. That's our share. It must not be in the desert, but where there is plenty of rain and mineral wealth. We want fertile, productive land on which we can farm and provide our own people with food, clothing, and shelter. This government must supply the machinery and the other tools needed for us to dig the earth. Give us everything we need that will take care of us for 20 to 25 years until we can produce and supply our own needs. So in my conclusion, I repeat, we want no part of integration with this wicked race that enslaved us. We want complete separation from this wicked race. But we should not be expected to leave America empty-handed. After 400 years of slave labor, we have some back pay coming, a bill that is owed that must be collected. If the government of America truly repents of its sins against our people and truly atones by giving us our true share, then America can save herself. But if America waits for God to step in and force her into a just settlement, God will take this entire continent away from America. For as the Bible says, God can give the entire kingdom to whomsoever he will which only means God can give this entire continent to whomsoever he will. Thank you.